you're new with us or you're visiting for the first time, it's great to have you with us. We hope and pray that your time with us this morning will be a great encouragement and blessing to you. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, or your corner posts, we're going to be looking this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes at the moment, and one of the keys to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is this constant refrain that comes up about life under the sun. Uh, And one of the things that we've been finding is that it's really a a catch-all phrase for what does it mean to live in this fallen world? Uh, Now, since the fall, the rebellion of Adam and Eve and sin has entered the world, uh, we've been, it, all of creation has been subject to frust, frustration and futility. So what does it mean to find meaning uh, in this fallen world, in our life under the sun? And I think what we have before us, I think, is one of the greatest philosophical examinations of that subject in the history of the world. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, Solomon was the king of Israel And we read in the Bible that Solomon was given an incredible gift of wisdom that no one before or during his day or even after his day was like him. Except that the Lord Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12. He says, in him now one who is greater than Solomon has come. And so what we read here about life under the sun is from the wisest man to ever exist until the Lord Jesus has come. And what we're going to see this morning, as Nathaniel just pointed out, is what it means to live as life under the Son of God. What does it mean now that Jesus has defeated death? What does this do to the meaninglessness of life? So if you look at your Bibles, uh, I'm going to start at verse 16 of chapter 3, go through to chapter 4, verse 6, and this is God's word. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust, all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. 
I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who, are already, who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how really exciting it is to come together, to meet together in corporate worship, to be able to sing your praises, to hear your voice speaking to us through your word, the warmth of Christian fellowship. Father, we pray for a blessing on us today that your Holy Spirit would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would rebuke our sin and comfort us in our grief. Lord, may you work in us by your Holy Spirit to give us a gospel hope. For you have provided the solution in the Lord Jesus. So we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there comes a point in everyone's life where you have to acknowledge the presence of evil. Not just through some kind of, you know, malicious or spiteful act, but especially when you realise that even your own hero has feet of clay. It could be a sporting figure, a politician, or even a religious leader. When you realise that, that they, just like you, are deeply flawed individuals, it can leave you feeling profoundly disappointed. And it can make you question everything you admired about them and the things that they stood for. Take, for instance, the revelations regarding the American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King. You may not have heard about this, but the FBI have recently released documents which contain a number of shocking revelations as to King's notorious sexual immorality. They were initially sealed in 1977 until the year 2027, but they ended up being made available through the JFK Assassination Records Collection Act. The most damaging of the memos, though, describes King as witnessing a woman being raped in a hotel room. And instead of stopping it, the FBI notes say that he actually encouraged the attacker to continue. King was once thought of as the social justice champion of the 20th century who was beyond reproach, a kind of secular saint, if you will. But after his death, it 
quickly emerged that he was a serial womanizer himself and adulterer. To make it even worse, King was, if you remember, not just a civil rights leader, but an ordained Baptist minister. So for many, many people, those revelations will not only call into question the good things that Martin Luther King achieved, and they were good, but they'll also be a slur on the credibility of the Christian faith. There comes a point, though, where, and the reason I tell you all this is because you have to realise that there is the presence of evil in this world. And it's important that we recognise this because it pops the bubble of our naive idealism that most people think that we are basically good. Because the Bible says that we are most definitely not. That even our righteous acts are like filthy rags and that everything we do has been stained by sin. And that's precisely what Solomon goes on to address here in the second half of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4. Because if you want to know where true meaning is found, you first have to realise how meaningless this life under the sun truly is. Life under the sun is, Solomon says, meaningless. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Because no one, no one at all is perfect. No one is good. Everything has been polluted by sin. It's not like in the movies, this world, where good always triumphs over evil and wrongs are always made right. Because the evil that exists in our world, as we'll see, emanates from within. It comes from us. As someone has once observed, if people were really honest when they were protesting, and you see this a lot, I find, in Hobart, you just come down Macquarie Street and there's always somebody seems to be protesting outside Parliament House. But if they were really honest, if they really got to the root cause of the problem, they should be wearing T-shirts or holding up placards that say, the problem is me. It's not society or upbringing which is to blame, it's us. We are the ones who are at fault. Now, as you can see from your sermon outlines, there are three main things that Solomon has to say in this regard, and they are, one, the reality of injustice, two, the reality of oppression, and three, the reality of envy. All of these issues taken together, though, show that we shouldn't put our trust in the things of this world, but we should always look to God. Just take the first point, which is the reality of injustice. Now, if you take a look at what Solomon says in verse 16, you'll see that this verse marks a transition from what Solomon has just been talking about. Remember back a couple of weeks ago, then you'll remember how in the first half of chapter 3, Solomon had taught that there is a time that all time is in God's hands. There was a time or a season for everything under heaven. And so it's foolish to think or to act that only one principle or only one approach should apply all of the time. 
For example, there is a time to search, but there is also a time to give up. There is a time to embrace, and there is also a time to refrain. There's a time to be silent, and there is a time to speak. There is a time to love, and there is even a time to hate. No one principle should be applied absolutely all of the time because everything, all of our times, are under God's sovereign hand. We are not kings or queens of this world. God is. As we saw, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, but we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's just a complete and utter mystery, isn't it? How many times have we been on the brink of war and yet the Lord has mercifully resolved the conflict? He has answered the prayers of his peoples in ways which we, I don't think, will ever understand until we enter into eternity. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson once wrote, More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And then he goes on to say, Therefore let thy voice rise like a fountain before me night and day. But after this, Solomon goes on to talk about the presence of evil in our world and how of coming to terms with this truth helps us to see the world aright. Solomon says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. See, even amongst civil rights leaders, there's wickedness. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Holy Spirit says that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. And notice what it says next, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do good. Notice the Apostle Paul says that we are to do this to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. How we submit to governing authorities is directly paralleled to how we submit to Christ. And so you can't say that you submit to God whom you can't see while rebelling against the government whom you do see. Because all forms of human authority have been instituted by Jesus. But with that said, sometimes those entrusted with upholding the rule of justice don't always do what is right, do they? Indeed, sometimes they can fail to reward what is right and fail to punish what is wicked. They can do the opposite. They can reward the wicked and punish the righteous. The very things which they've been entrusted by God to do, they fail. For instance, sometimes I think politicians like Daniel Andrews in Victoria do the opposite. If you take uh, what happened to Andrew Thorburn this week, the now ex-CEO of the Essendon Football Club who was forced to resign 
not because of what he said or believed, but because of what his pastor preached, and that from nine years ago. Biblically speaking, his pastor didn't even say anything which was controversial. Daniel Andrews, though, publicly said that the beliefs of people like Guy Mason, his pastor, the beliefs of Christians who believe the Bible on the subjects of abortion or marriage are, and I quote, appalling, hateful, bigoted, unkind and exclusive. That kind of moral or political corruption, and this is from a man who claims to be a Roman Catholic, but that kind of moral or political corruption is horribly meaningless, isn't it, to witness? It's an example of the word, the Hebrew word hevel, a vapour, another kind of chasing after the wind. And if it weren't for the truth that's contained in verse 17, I think we'd all lose hope. Because Solomon goes on to say that he realised that nonetheless, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every activity and a time for every deed. Daniel Andrews himself must one day realise that he will stand before Almighty God, that there is an electorate greater than the electorate of Victoria or the public opinion in Twitter. The question remains, though, why is God's justice sometimes delayed or even worse, denied? Why doesn't he judge straight away and right every wrong? Why wait until the final day of judgment? Well, Solomon has an answer for that too. And it's as helpful as it is profound. Just take a look at what he says in verse 18. Because even human corruption and wickedness is under the sovereign hand of God. He's, and he's even using it positively to bring about good and holy purposes. Someone writes in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. You see, our present existence is what you might call a proving ground. It's a test that humbles us and makes us realise that we are all, each and every one of us, but dust. For one of the purposes of the presence of good and evil is to reveal our place in the universe and whether or not we are in a right relationship with God. Are we living for Jesus or are we living for the devil? The question is really that confronting and stark. Because Solomon's observation is that life is not as simplistic as even many believers think. It's not merely a matter of the righteous always being blessed, whereas the wicked are always punished. No, as we've been learning throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the same fate awaits them both. Because ultimately, and this is the real meaningless tragedy, isn't it? Everyone dies. In this regard, from a merely human perspective, life under the sun, we are no different to animals. For when we die, the flesh of both people and animals 
disintegrates in exactly the same way. As Solomon writes in verses 19 to 21, everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and to dust all return. And who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Who knows? Some people get worried about passages like this. and They ask, so will my pet dog go to heaven? And my very provocative and emotive answer is, yes, I think there's every chance we'll experience the pleasure of dogs in heaven as long as you recognise that all cats go to hell. Because <laughs> the reality is, come on, let's face it, cats are just more sinful than dogs, right? <laughs> now, obviously, I'm being very insensitive and also ignorant because the truth of the matter is we just don't know. Which is precisely Solomon's point. Unless the one who made us reveals what happens to us after, after we die, how can we be certain of anything? How do we know where the spirit of anyone goes after they die in this life under the sun? Unless, of course, someone comes back from the dead and tells us for himself. But this is why, once again, everything according to Solomon before Jesus is meaningless. It's Hevel. Everything is transitory and fleeting, just like a morning mist or vapour, because absolutely nothing lasts. Not even the love and the companionship of a beloved pet. Even that should remind us that life is hevel. Life is fleeting. Life is meaningless. The second aspect follows on from this, and it's that not only is there gross injustices in this world, but there is also often oppression. Just take a look at what Solomon says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Because the presence of evil and suffering is everywhere. Nothing in all of human life escapes from its touch. Solomon says in verse 1, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. There's an old saying, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because we're all corrupt. And unfortunately, we see that kind of scenario played out over and over and over again. What's more, whenever you think that that particular person is going to be different, you quickly realise that they're not. They're just as fallen. They're just as broken. They're just as corrupt as the rest of us. And once again, this can be profoundly disappointing. We're extremely fortunate in Australia because many of the countries in the world, around the world, experience a far greater degree of oppression than we do here. And yet, we've seen it, I 
I think, growingly. There's injustice, there's oppression. The reason why we oppress each other, though, is because of sin. The presence of evil in each and every one of our hearts. It's the desire to have ourselves as the king and everyone else to fall into line with serving us. When you look at it like that, or even more pertinently, when you experience the pain of being oppressed, you can see why Solomon says what he does in verse 3. It seems incredibly negative and depressing when you first read it, but once again, it's an accurate presence, accurate description because the presence of evil in the world is so great. Solomon says in verse 3, But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Better to have not been born than to experience oppression. Because the bad you experience so often that Far outweighs the good, isn't it? It's so terrible that sometimes you think to yourself, it would be better not to have been born. The third and final observation that Solomon makes, though, is the most challenging of all because it relates to the presence of evil within ourselves. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll acknowledge and affirm the truth of what Solomon is saying in verse 4. But it's really shocking Because the underlying motivation for so much of what we do, if not all of it, is pride. That competitive spirit to be better than everyone else. Solomon says in verse 4, Then I saw that all labour and all achievement in work, not even most, comes from a man's envy of his neighbour. Is that not true? Isn't it what drives you on to study, to get good grades, to work well, to acquire? Is it not envy of our neighbour? This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, this is a really huge call to make, isn't it? But if you stop and think about it for a second, it's true. Why do we so often strive to study or work hard? It's because we're comparing ourselves to others. It's that we want to be known that we came first in our class. That we were better than those around us. It's because we're comparing ourselves to others. It's because we see what others are doing or have achieved And we want to see and experience the same results, or even if we're honest, more. Everything we do is influenced by envy. Just stop and observe sometime how siblings in a family will compete with one another. And in particular, how the older ones get really upset when their little brother or sister outshines them in something. It causes an incredible amount of tension or boasting. I've seen it in my own family over and over again. One child plays a sport, little brother or sister gets really good at them, they change sports. (laughs) (laughs) 
because they want to be known for who they are. But with that said, there's an opposite kind of danger, isn't there, or trap that you can fall into. And that is you could turn around and you go, okay, okay, I'm not going to be motivated by pride or envy at all. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to be the archetypical Australian bludger. However, however, Solomon says that that is equally as dumb as it is to be driven by envy or pride. Because being lazy doesn't produce or do anything. In fact, it's just destructive. Solomon says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What a powerful image that is. The fool folds his hands, does nothing, and just eats his own flesh. I love how Solomon presents the answer to both kinds of extremes, though, when he says in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness or tranquility than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Like as we saw a couple of weeks ago, at least dogs, when they chase their own tail, there's a tail at the end that they're chasing. But when you're just chasing envy and more and more and more, you're chasing wind. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never get to the end of it. There'll always be that little bit more. Somebody asked Rockefeller once, who was the richest man in his day, what drove him on, you know? When would be enough for him? And you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You never have enough. It's like your whole life is on full throttle. You know, it's like when you make your car redline on the accelerator. Everything's going a million miles an hour. Stress, worry. Acquisition, got to get this thing. Have you felt like your life's becoming like that? And at some point, you just have to stop and you have to ask yourself, why? Why am I doing this? This is meaningless. Why am I getting so worked up and so stressed about all of this? What's really going on to achieve? Or more importantly, what is it that's really driving you? Is it envy? Is it making a name for myself? Especially in comparison to everyone else? That can be such a hard question to ask because the answer is nearly always going to be yes. If you're honest. Yes. Yes, that job is consuming too much of my time. Yes, that relationship is occupying too much of my affection. Yes, that thing is really the motivation of pride and envy. Now, all of this is incredibly depressing and sad. And it could almost make you feel hopeless and despair. Everything around us has been corrupted by evil and sin. Why bother doing anything at all? Because as I hope you hear and experience as you come to church each week, the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. 
It changes everything. It's what can give your life hope and meaning and purpose. Because Jesus offers us the sure and certain hope of eternal life in the face of death. You remember what Solomon asked before when he was talking about who can show us about the spirit of the animal, does it go down to the earth? The spirit of man, does it go up? We have the answer in the face of Jesus. We have the one who has conquered death itself. We have the one who says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's why we can be content in every situation. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to keep on striving and chasing after the wind because through Christ, we can do everything through him who gives us strength. Amen? You see, Jesus has not only saved us from our sin, but he continues to help us each and every day. His mercies and his grace are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so we need never despair. I was reading an article about an English writer and novelist, uh, Julian Barnes. And in recent years, he's uh, moved from being an atheist to being an agnostic. Barnes says that he thinks about, this is what he says, I think about death every day. And sometimes in the middle of the night, I'm roared awake and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic and a vicious awareness that this life is a rented world. What an interesting thing to say, that this life is a rented world. Because it illustrates what Solomon has saying in verse 11 of chapter 3. That God has put eternity into man's heart and yet he cannot fathom what God has done. From beginning to end, on his own, he cannot fathom it. He knows that it's true, but he can't put his finger on it. He knows that there's more, but he doesn't know what it is. Julian Barnes has a very real and appropriate fear of death and what that might mean. But through Christ, we no longer need to fear death. Isn't that incredible? We have a comforter. We have a comforter who comforts us even in the face of death because we have one who has gone through death to the other side and holds out his hand and offers us hope. And not only has gone through the other side, but he's with us now. He's with us this morning to comfort, to give us grace, to give us strength. See, what might you be worried about this day? What throws your heart into turmoil or concerns you? Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is mighty to save. Therefore, you have nothing to fear or be anxious about if you look to him, if you call out to him. And you know what it also means? Knowing Jesus means that you shouldn't be surprised or devastated when you see evil or corruption in this world. 
Because there's going to come a day when Jesus will judge it. There's going to come a day when he'll put everything right. You see, Ecclesiastes helps us to see the world correctly, doesn't it? In and through Jesus, we have hope. We have strength. We have peace. And not just for the next life, but for this life right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love is stronger than death. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've reached out to us and even while we were still your enemies, you brought us to faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we want to pray this morning for those in our number that don't yet know you or trust you, know your salvation, that you would reveal yourself to them draw them to you, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you for how strong it is. And we pray, Lord, that you give us the grace to believe it and to live it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word.